Welcome to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas, clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. I help high-striving busy people let go of the pressure of perfection to create more joy, connection, and compassion in their lives. On this podcast, we promote balance of a burnout through giving you the permission to pause, the curiosity to find your purpose, and the courage to play. Welcome back to the Pause Purpose Play podcast with me, Michaela Thomas. One of the most common things I come across when I work with burnout or stress in high-striving women who are very ambitious and put pressure on themselves to be perfect is that they struggle at work. They work too many hours, they feel really touched out and burnt out from the work they're doing, and they lose their confidence. They keep questioning whether they're good enough, whether they've done enough. And very often when I work with them, I also have to look at the environment that they're actually in. So many people who come to therapy have been told that they're not resilient enough, they're not coping with stress well enough, and they just need to go to therapy to learn how to do that. Whereas we often then think about what's the external pressure around you like. In this episode with Fiona Kearns, we talk a lot about that, about how toxic workplaces can obviously impact on your overall well-being. That it's not your fault if the environment, if the organization you are in is putting a toxic pressure on you. And it's maybe not appropriate for you then to think, it's me who's not resilient enough. It's me who's not coping. So I hope that this episode is going to be helpful for you if you are in a place of work that is quite toxic, that also may be not allowing women to have opportunities because of us being a fertile age or having young children. Maybe you got pregnant and then got screwed, or as Fiona calls it, grafted, then shafted. In this episode, we're going to think a lot about how imposter syndrome can hold us back in the workplace and how we can rebuild confidence. Fiona's going to show you the quickest route to do that, when you've lost confidence in your ability at work. So let's introduce my guest. Fiona Kearns is a business psychologist who helps people get rid of self-doubt, own their skill set and feel confident about playing huge in life and work. She is experienced in the IT, telecom and non-profit worlds. Fiona is a member of the Association for Business Psychology and author of How to Increase Your Confidence. She specializes in helping leaders fulfill their potential in business. She loves the thrill of helping clients manage their imposter syndrome to become confident, visible, and more impactful. Welcome to the podcast, Fiona. I'm really happy to have you here. Oh, it's fantastic to be here, Michaela. I'm just delighted to be part of your show. I think we're going to have a lot of crossover today. So there's a lot of things that you do that I would do, but we do it on different levels with different purposes. So I hope that we're going to have a really nourishing conversation about toxic productivity, burnout, toxic workplaces, the different pressures that we have internally within us, but also the pressures we face externally outside of us. So let's dive into that. But first, before we do, obviously, the listeners need to know a little bit about you, a little bit more about why you are passionate about these things, why you think about toxic workplaces. So tell the listeners a little bit about your story. The reason I'm so passionate about helping leaders and individuals who work in toxic workplaces is I was in that place. I was in an extremely toxic work environment. Uh, I was, you know, I started off in a role that, you know, I got promoted and promoted and, you know, earning more money, getting much more responsibility up to the point where I became. CEO of the organization but as the as my role changed and new investment came into the company the culture changed and my part in the company and certainly in terms of my role within the company diminished and changed and it just became a very toxic environment for me and I stayed far longer than I should have because I thought I was coping with it and managing it, but I wasn't. And it led me to a place where I doubted almost everything I did. You know, I questioned 
whether I could make a cup of tea one day, which was a wonderful point, a horrible point, but it was this wonderful point of clarity because did I really think I couldn't make a cup of tea? (laughs) You know, a part of me did. And it was just a measure of how far I had fallen in terms of my esteem, my confidence and all those things. You know, I was a person who was going places and now I didn't know where on earth I was going. And it was just this horrible, horrible time for me. I really don't want other people to feel like they have nobody to turn to if they're in that place. So I'm on a mission to help women leaders because I think there are better ways of dealing with it. And, you know, I found my way out, but I learned a lot of very hard lessons. And now I just really resonate with individuals who are in that space, often blaming themselves for what is an environmental problem. And it's good that you look to yourself when there are issues. I think that's right and proper. But in so many instances, the fault or you know issue is not with the individual. It's with the organization and the environment. And I want to help people see that, first of all, and help them manage that and exit it when it's appropriate. I really want to make sure people don't go through this long period of staying in places, which is just really, really bad for them. And I guess that really connects with your purpose that you've had to suffer through this yourself. You've got lived experience of how hard it can be to fall from grace like that, to feel really confident and strong and capable in your role as CEO to then doubting your every move. There must have been a really dreadful time in your life. Yes. And I want to say that's a huge understatement. (laughs) Um, It was really, really horrible. And I, I almost feel ashamed to say this, but I know I'm also not alone. It took me years to recover. Like, I know, I know people kind of think a timeline, you know, I would never stay that in a place like that for long, but I really did. And I, I've had to deal with that. I've had to forgive myself for thinking that that was the right thing to do and, and prioritizing other things for myself. And, you know, one of the reasons I stayed, and it wasn't the complete reason, but one of the reasons was financial. I thought, oh, this this is, you know, financially this is a good position it's a good role so I stayed for that but you know you think you think you have a control on the situation and you just don't you just don't and it's been quite a journey and that forgiveness piece is easier said than done absolutely and I guess that's where so many people are in that boat where they're blaming themselves for what isn't their fault where shame sets in where It's actually not about the individual not coping or the individual not being resilient enough, not having the right coping strategies. When the environment is toxic, you know, we can't blame the individual for not blossoming. Yes. And I think that's where the WHO, the World Health Organization, their definition of burnout in terms of its place in the work environment is an important step because it attributed specifically for that. I think a lot of the time organizations want to fix the individual and, you know, often with very good intentions, you know, resilience and stress management and all those things. And I think, you know, that has its place. But this belief that it's all on the individual is mistaken, to put it kindly, and and, and worse it's really just trying to push out the individual who aren't operating the way they want things to operate in some of those toxic environments, which have very toxic work practices. So thinking about the the definition you mentioned there, the World Health Organization definition of burnout in the workplace, why is that important? What, what's in there that takes away some of that blame on the individual? I think it's the piece uh, how it it refers to the health impact, but it's on the individual, but it's not classed as an illness. And it specifically refers to chronic workplace stress. So I think that there's two pieces here. It's the recognition that it impacts on health, but isn't specifically an illness. 
and it's to do with the occupational context. So I think it's it, there's two key pieces in there as I see it, because I think this piece that puts it on the individual in terms of oh, the individual just can't manage stress, they can't manage you know fast-paced work environment. I think that's flawed, and I think the narrative on that is often portrayed in a less than authentic way. I think it's kind of spun to be an individual issue. And I see this, even though they haven't done it now, but there's the potential here for them to, in the future, change it. Who's to say it wouldn't be developed into something else in the future? And I, I'm not suggesting they should or will, but it, it, it allows people to note the seriousness of this burnout is a real and present issue for so many people and it's specific to the work environment and that's really powerful because it helps us to shift narratives that does put blame and and shame onto the individual things like if you can't stand the heat get out of the kitchen that you know it's it's your personal failure to to adhere to the standard that's the issue rather than actually the standard is set too high and it's just unrealistic for people to be expected to meet those targets. Yes, exactly. And so when you shift that onto the organisation, you have a better chance of creating a high-performing work environment because ultimately, I think we want the same thing. We want high performance. But I think the challenge is that organisations often go about it the wrong way. And a lot of the time, it's because managers are not trained on how to deal with people and don't listen to people and don't have conversations with people. Some of this, I see it as a lack of basic management and people skills. And I, and I don't think it's given the recognition it deserves. And I like that WHO have done this because I like to think that people will start taking more note of it and doing something so that the organization does better, the manager does better, and the individual does better as well. It's 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 a win all around when people deal with this. So it's almost a bit of short-sightedness there when people don't look into how to best support members of staff in the workplace, not making the workplace non-toxic because they think it's going to have an impact on their performance. They're worried that that's going to make their productivity go down if they provide people with I guess, compassion, cutting them some slack. Is that something you come across a lot where the leaders are worried about implementing, you know, kinder, more compassionate strategies? I think there's a lot of double speak going on. Every organization, you know, in their conference wall or you know, their mission statements, they all speak a good game. But I think the reality is very different. There is still a belief that you need the carrot and stick approach and and mainly a lot of stick and it's it's this false belief that that is actually what drives results and for me that's a disconnect from the individuals like if you if you look at what's going on on the ground individuals who are customer facing all of these individuals if if the senior people aren't involved with them aren't listening to them They just have this limited view of what people are, what they're capable of, what they're doing and so on. So I think it's this mix of not understanding really what's going on and a mistaken belief that those individuals just don't work hard enough. You know, the younger generation, you know, want an easy ride and and all these things that get passed on sometimes generationally. Um, you know, the oh, young people today and so on. But that narrative hasn't been updated. And they're not looking at the data. The data, the research doesn't support that. The way to win, the way to get a high performance team is not that way. It can work in the short term, for sure. You can lash the whip and, you know, for a certain period of time it works. But ultimately, you lose the good people. You know, you get get people who only do what they have to do, you know, want to clock out early and so on. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, oh, all the team want to finish at five o'clock because that's what they're paid to work. So it, it ends up becoming cyclical in a negative way. Mm, that's really interesting of how we think of 
the generational differences as well. I mean, you kind of think about the the slating of the millennial snowflake, so to speak, that the younger generation can't tough it out. Whereas actually, I think there's something admirable in the young younger generation where they they're able to tune into their needs and speak up for their needs and and able to ask for for better working environments than maybe the, the older generation would have done. Yeah, absolutely. I I just don't buy you know that stereotype of the of the generations. It does it doesn't make sense. I think there's a lot to be said, and I agree with your point. I think millennials who are you know, coming through in the workforce and in the workforce now, they have a clearer picture of what they want and what's important to them. And I think it's hats off to them. Yes, of course. Why not ask for what you want? This this is what we're all about, being assertive, asking for what you want, why settle, and want good for the community, the global community at that as well. I think those are things we should be encouraging and, and advocating for. And if we're generalizing a whole um, cohort, i.e. the millennials, you know, it's, it's, you know, the plus with the minuses of which every cohort has. Absolutely. I mean, it's really difficult to do sweeping statements of a whole generations of people because we exactly. all consist of individuals, <laughs> of course. But thinking about what you said about community there, you also talk about sort of connection, not perfection in the workplace. What do you mean by that? I think this misplaced view that you have to kind of corral your workforce and not give them enough information or, you know, encourage them to do things that maybe aren't ethical in in some respects or other practices that are kind of okay for somebody else or I'm doing them so they're okay. I think that's not really understanding what happens in a particular job. And I think it comes through when you have senior leadership, you know, the board to the C-suite and down that just don't have a clear picture of what's going on in the organization and doesn't listen to people who are dealing with the customers and individuals within the organization. I think a lot gets lost and it's to the detriment of the company as well, because it means they can't be as agile. If you're not listening to your staff and who are listening to the customers, you're just missing a trick. And I think that arrogance is something that, again, doesn't work in terms of the, the client or the staff and so on. So it's just very, very challenging in that particular space. So we're thinking about concretely what would happen then if if anyone is listening finds themselves in a toxic environment at work. What kind of challenges would that mean that they'd be facing? <laughs> I could think of any number. I think the number one challenge is believing that it's specific to you, that you feel it's just you. Because when you experience burnout, I mean, one of the pieces of burnout is that you have reduced efficacy. You're not as good at your job. And that is, and and I think of this in in the context of myself, I'd gone from being this, you know, go-getter, get stuff done kind of person to feeling like I wasn't very good at my job and the shame of that. So the point of that is that that makes you feel like, well, I'm no good anymore. So I kind of have to stay here because who else is going to want me? So it it can look like that, but it can also be dealing with a manager who plays lip service to supporting you or other members of the team not sharing information. It could be somebody almost trying to gaslight you in terms of reframing a situation in, in a way that you don't believe is true. And because everybody else seems to go along with it, you wonder if you've lost your mind because it just seems completely crazy to you. But everybody else seems to feel that that's okay. It just, it, it's the situation where you feel like you doubt almost every single thing that you do and are not making a lot of progress or that you feel like you're, you're choosing your battles all the time. There's a lot of different experiences that can be going on for people when you're in that place. So it sounds like there's a lot of presence of negatives, a lot of, we're using the word toxic, a lot of poisonous, harsh things that are negative for you. 
is there also an absence of positives? Does that mean that the person who's in a toxic workplace, maybe experiencing burnout, also is lacking joy, vitality, fulfillment, meaning, these kind of things? Is What kind of positive things are absent? I would often help individuals. Like Sometimes I will troubleshoot specific conversations and I might literally give somebody the words to say in dealing with an individual because that's just what an individual needs at that particular time, bearing in mind they're under ongoing, you know, chronic stress. And, and sometimes that's just what they need, literally the words. But it's always struck me, and I was chatting with a friend of mine recently, and she works in a really good work environment. And she started telling me what she said to her direct manager. She's really going places, um, my friend, but she said something and I thought, oh gosh, I'd never say that. That's not really the right thing to do. But when you are in a an environment where you're supported and you can just do your job, you don't have to say the right thing all the time. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be good at your job and get it done. And that's what's missing. In a toxic environment, it's all about trying to be perfect because anything less than that you're you're blamed you're you know you're put up and kind of shamed in the meeting for everybody to hear that you haven't done something so those are the pieces that are missing anything less than perfection is just not acceptable and you're targeted in that environment so that support the trust you just the trust is not there you feel like you're always watching your back in those environments so those are all the things that are just absent in those play- cases so there's almost like there's no there's no margin of error there's no allowance for getting something wrong messing something up making a mistake that you know you have to be constantly on it otherwise it's not good enough yes so no wonder then that people who already might have perfectionistic tendencies or doubt themselves entering these workplaces are so susceptible to burnout because the environment feeds that internal pressure with their external pressure. Yeah. That's like a double whammy of stress. Absolutely. Absolutely. The pressure is unbelievable in that situation. And you've really put it together. You've got this kind of perfect storm of internal and external coming together. Mm. It's really difficult then because someone who then who might be aware of having high standards for themselves or been told by other people outside of work that you know you're a bit of a perfectionist it can be really difficult then to not get swallowed up in that self-blame story that isn't my fault it's because I put too much pressure on myself and I guess reluctant to acknowledge how much the workplace also swallows that up and takes that yeah it's it's huge and in that environment you're investing all your energy into you know, presenting a certain face and being in a particular way and not always into doing your job. So it is no surprise that you're so depleted, and particularly if you're doing it for a long period of time. It's just not sustainable. It's just, and it's the horrible place that people get. And it's also why people struggle with decision-making because you don't win regardless. You know, you make a decision, it's almost go, always going to be wrong. You know, the chances of it being right, that won't get noticed. So there's just this phenomenal pressure on the individual in the environment. And if there's also a culture of scapegoating an individual, then, you know, it's spotlight on an individual too. It's extremely challenging. So why are toxic workplaces so prevalent? Why is this so common? Superb question. I think. Toxic workplaces are common because we don't train our managers. That's ultimately why. We have a disconnect at senior levels between our teams and we manage people badly. And we don't speak to the team and our clients at a real level. When we get that disconnect, we don't really know what's going on. And so then the top down approach of kind of pushing things out and insisting and managers doing it really badly just misunderstands 
everything that's important about performance. And I think the fact that we don't focus on that side of things mean we get all these horrible outcomes and negative self-fulfilling prophecies. But I also think that the nature of burnout being, as the example earlier, that the individuals have reduced efficacy. So we're less, we're not as good at our job as we used to be. It's easier for a person to come in and go, well, you know, she's just crap at her job. You know, she just used to be good. Let's just get rid of her. Like that's isn't that the most sensible thing to do. On the face of it, it is. And it's the this kind of short-term approach without being able to dig underneath. Everybody seems to be just too busy. We're we're obsessed with being busy. And we're not focused on the well-being and performance in the organisation. And it really doesn't have to be that way. All an organisation has to do is get serious about performance and look at the data. Everybody talks about data, but they're not looking at it and they're not applying it in the organisation. If they really did, they would train their managers. They would get clarity around what good, what great looks like in the organisation. We do not need to have these toxic work environments. We can have an environment which works really well for the organisation, the team and the individual and make loads of money. You know, that's the brief of business. And it's really doable in the long term. But this toxic culture is not sustainable. You know, no wonder 40% of staff are planning on resigning. That's not a surprise to me because we just don't take this seriously enough. And that then has a knock-on impact on our overall well-being because we spend so much time, so much of our waking time at work. So no wonder that there's a strong correlation between how we are faring at work and how we are faring in ourselves, in our general well-being. Absolutely. We think that we can keep work separate from the rest of our life we think that we can just you know take the check at the end of the month allow the money to come into our bank account at the end of the month and sort of you know suck it up or suck it up because the money is coming in but we forget and it's a bit like the the frog in the boiling pot we don't realize the impact on us over time because it diminishes us, we become less vocal. If, if you're choosing your battles, it means you can't be your real self. You, you, can't, you can't be as creative as you normally be. You can't be as entrepreneurial as you would normally be. You can't contribute the way you would like. So you feel like you're limiting yourself because you are. And you're, you're playing a smaller, smaller role over time. And that affects you as an individual. You can't leave that at the office at half five, six o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock. It's, it's not really possible to leave that all behind. You can do it to a point, but over time that takes its toll. And that's the piece that can really creep up on an individual. It certainly was one that really crept up on me. I love that uh, metaphor of the sort of the the frog in the pot because it is one of those things that's such a slow burner that can be hard to even notice yourself. You don't notice the the heat being turned up slowly bit by bit and how you're maybe struggling to cope with it. So I wonder if there's anything specific to women in in workplaces that are toxic because you often talk about you know that you help female leaders or you work with women in the workplace. What's what's specifically shown up as a challenge for women in these workplaces? I think it's twofold. One is that women and men often have different styles of management and there's this block of, of getting enough senior women leaders and they have different styles. So I think sometimes the way a woman may proceed in a given situation is different and they're or perceived as less than in an environment. And I also think that the old perception, I mean, this is 2021, I really don't like saying this, but there's a lot of challenges when you have a child or children 
you know, as a parent, you've got a lot on your plate, but a lot of that does fall to the mother and there's maternity leave and the perception of not being committed and having to be accommodated and missing out on opportunities. And we like to think that we are very far ahead in those situations, but the reality just doesn't reflect that. You know, we all have stories from friends who went on maternity leave, came back and, you know, were made redundant, their jobs were changed and so on. And, you know, sure, we could all kick up a fuss, but typically we don't. We sort of put up with it a bit. We we often kick up a bit of a fuss. Sometimes it's a big fuss. Sometimes we sue, but more often than not, we don't. And that's because we figure, well, you know what? I do have another role here. I do, you know, I know this job. I like other aspects of it. And I think the expectations on women and how we are in the world in general creates a different dynamic and until we have more senior women leaders who portray and normalize to a greater extent different ways of leading I don't think we're going to get to that good place and I think we will also reduce that toxic environment as well because we have a better way of leading that's more focused on managing risk and looking at the longer term as well I think we have a little bit to go in terms of making that um, a fairer fairer workplace and fairer society as well and I think we have a role to play as women men have a role to play in society as well men need to step up and stay home with the children on a fair basis as well as other parents do as mothers do I think there's certain other dynamics that come in there. There are still stereotypes that we're fighting and dealing with that still we need to work on as individuals, as organisations and as a society. I mean, there's lots there, isn't it? There's big societal shifts that need to happen in order for this equality piece to come that will also protect women from from being what I think you call grafted than shafted um, yes. of how we get affected by this and you know the movement that uh, Pregnant Than Screwed has created where we're discussing fairer childcare, affordable childcare, you know, not being able to just get rid of someone when they're on maternity leave. There's so much lobbying going on, but it's, the wheels are still turning slowly. And I think it's really difficult with how those toxic workplaces also feed stereotypes and narratives to men that prevents them from taking up even when you know, there are paternity packages there. You know, we know that, for instance, John Lewis has created things recently that there are still stereotypes preventing men from doing that because they might be seen as weak or not uh, competitive or not dedicated enough to their workplace if they choose to take a child caring role in their, in their home. So it's just so much blocking both men and women, isn't it? Absolutely. I'm, I love that you've drawn that out because that's absolutely the case. So much of this is perceived as as a woman's issue women's issue but it's not all these things that limit women conversely limit men and and I think what a shame we are limiting in essence our whole population by reinforcing these gender stereotypes and of course then where does that leave non-binary folk and and others so why are we why are we holding people back and holding them to these gender stereotypes in this place it's it's just who is that working for and i'm i'm really not clear on who it's working for because i'm just seeing a lot of downsides yeah absolutely if we see 40% of people wanting to leave their workplace um it's not seeming to work for for that many and i still recall uh, you know a, a conference i did on uh, compassionate leadership someone shared the data on how the moment of the day that people find the most difficult um, that they hate the most in their work day is the time they spent with their boss so you know we kind of think about this how leadership impacts how we perceive work what creates a a toxic versus non-toxic environment and how we can cope with that without putting blame on the individual so We've talked about a lot of big topics today, and I'm, I'm going to push you a little bit further on that on another big topic that I know that you're passionate about as well. 
which is the imposter syndrome. You know, how can we effectively deal with the imposter syndrome? Oh, gosh, this is a huge one. Imposter syndrome. I'm sighing because in some ways it feels like old news, but it's just still so relevant. You know, I still have people, you know, weekly telling me that they're wrestling with imposter syndrome, this feeling that they're a fake, they're going to get found out. One of my um, friends from NCT classes way back, uh, well, not way back when, six years ago or so, contacted me and she's a nurse and she has been doing this amazing work. Like she was telling me, I hadn't spoken to her in quite some time. She was telling me all the things that she was doing. I was just going, wow, 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 amazing. She works in the mental health space and doing really great stuff. And she's really entrepreneurial, um, but it's not an entrepreneurial environment she's in. But she needs that skill set in order to do what she's doing. And she'd been put forward for this extremely senior role. And she said, oh, I've still got imposter syndrome, Fiona. I was going, wow, how can this person feel that way? But of course she does. And I get that because I experience it as well. You know, it, it, it you know, so much of the population, some stats will tell you, you know, 75% of the population experience imposter syndrome at some point in their life. I mean, the stats vary, but it's this huge number. And some of this comes down to, we feel far outside of our comfort zone we are under a lot of pressure but how we deal with it on a practical level because I think for a lot of time we're stuck in our head with imposter syndrome we've got it spinning around going crap somebody's going to come up and tell me found out you're actually rubbish and you should be demoted five grades because we've just figured out you're rubbish which of course is will never happen and it's not the case and, and we logically know that but what we miss as we get along and we advance is that we don't update our identity so to speak we don't internalize the success that we have and it's it's one of these things we intellectualize and we know but the other bit is it feels like it doesn't make it inside so we have to take some practical steps to help ourselves realize that and one of the really good ways of doing that is writing it down and this sounds a bit basic but this works and this is writing down what you have achieved and if you're at the starting point you can just start by you know I like to email myself every day email the wins I've had today now some days the wins are I got up out of bed and fed my children <laughs> um, but other times they're they're a bit more elaborate than that. But we need to start documenting what we're doing and what we're achieving as we go along so that we can look back on it and take it on board. We're internalizing it by doing that. We can also do it by asking our friends. If we're in business, asking for testimonials, allowing what people are saying to work on the inside and update ourselves we often get stuck in in a past version of ourselves in terms of where we were 10 years ago five years ago 20 years ago in our head we're in a different place and it's just like when you update the software on your computer we need to do that every so often and writing it down and documenting what we're doing what we did what the result of that is allows us to see what we've actually done so that's where I would start. And I think that's the most powerful way of helping to update your identity and manage that imposter syndrome. And I guess that's really helpful because it's almost like you, you're allowing the wind to stay within your periphery, within your field of vision a little bit longer than what you might do if we we're high striving. It would just sort of next, next. Okay, right. I did that. Next thing. It's, uh, it sort of reminds me of a, a mindfulness strategy called savoring where it's almost like you save or you win by writing that email to yourself or writing it down on a piece of paper, reflecting on it allows it to stay within you, you know, within you for a bit longer. You can really savor that much like you would savor a lovely chocolate cake at the end of a meal rather than just scoffing it down like most of us do. Uh, and that can just help us to really stay in that moment of 
appreciation, um, pride or joy of what we've achieved before we get pushed on to the next target. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly it. It's a form of celebration, which is an important part of what we do. Yeah. Mm. I love that. I love that. And obviously, we've had uh, business coaching from the same person who's also been on the podcast, Wendy Kendall, talking about sort of how we let go of the guru leaders. So anyone listening to this episode will like that as well, where we think a little bit more about letting go of power um, as a leader. And um, Wendy taught me to celebrate my wicked wins. So I have a wicked wins box where I physically print things out and put that in the, in the box. And when I'm having a bit of a low moment or occasionally or you know, if that imposter syndrome would creep up on me, I might then take a dive into the box and see, actually, look at all the people I've helped, look at all the, the different ex- uh, successes I've had. And it's obviously normal to have moments where we doubt, normal to have moments where we don't feel good about ourselves. So I wonder if you can also say something about confidence, because we started our conversation thinking about how your confidence plummeted to the point of, I don't know if I can make a cup of tea. <laughs> So how do we go from imposter syndrome to confidence? Hmm. This is a really good question because there's so much out there on confidence. But confidence is connected to so many things and it's connected to confidence and other and other things, but they're not the same. And people confuse them, which to be honest, it baffles me, but I think perhaps it baffles me because I'm, I'm so interested in this topic and I've looked at it so closely. But really, if you're looking for a quick route to reclaiming your confidence, you're going to do it outside of work. The quickest route to building your confidence is to do something that's fun or enjoyable for you because that's how you build yourself back up. To build yourself back up, it's necessary to do things that allow you to be appreciated, to acquire a new skill, to do other things. It's this connection piece. It just comes up again and again. It's a place where you connect with other people and to do it in a safe environment. When you've been in that toxic workplace, it's very difficult to rebuild yourself back up there alone. For me personally, one of the things I did, because you know I invested absolutely everything into my job, I had no time for anything else. You know, when I decided I was going to do something different, I, I bought a motorbike and I joined Toastmasters, which is a public speaking group. Because I just couldn't invest anymore into my job. I had to do something else for myself. I didn't stick with the motorbiking, even though it was brilliant and I met some fantastic people. I did keep up the toastmastering and public speaking. But it allowed me, both of those things allowed me to connect with other people, different people, and learn a new skill. And that built my confidence that I could bring back into work. We think that to do better, we need to work harder. And that's so misplaced. It's, you know, it's the law of diminishing return. You work harder, but you are not getting more results. You want to build your confidence. My recommendation is find a hobby, do something you like where you can connect with other people and build yourself up, learn a skill or do something fun. That's for me is one of the best ways to develop your confidence. That's really, really helpful as a tip, isn't it? That we're not you know, putting all the eggs in one basket, that we have to actually expand the horizon and look out elsewhere, outside of work and skilling yourself up and building yourself up there again. So I guess this brings us to the pause, purpose, play element of this podcast. You know, we've already given us some some ideas of how you might be playful. You know, it sounds like there's an element of experimentation there, trying motorbiking and toastmastering you know, that's kind of stepping out of your comfort zone, doing something playful. But let's think about pausing first. What do you do to slow down, switch off, to pause? This is one I'm not very good at. <laughs> you're really not the not... first and you're not going to be the last on <laughs> this not, podcast I'm not to say that. i very good at this. And I think maybe this will sound a bit counterintuitive, but the way I pause is to walk run which is not pausing but it pauses my mind 
and allows me to reset. So a good walk or a run, which I'm not doing much at the moment, otherwise I would have just said plain old running, but it's walking, it's getting out in the outdoors, getting some fresh air. That is my version of pausing. You know, it's a really helpful reminder though, because not all pausing has to be about stillness. It sounds like it's it's much more about taking a lateral step outside of your head and dropping into your body, feeling the ground under your feet when you're walking. It doesn't mean you have to be completely still, but you're doing something else to step out of your mind. You're pressing pause for your busy, cluttery mind. Exactly. That is exactly. And that is what works for me. And then purpose. We've always talked quite a lot about that. But what do you think is most important for you in terms of connecting with your purpose? It's everything. I want to say something less profound than that but it it just it just means so much to me I sometimes regret that I spent so much time in a place where I wasn't appreciated and was not following my purpose now it's been wonderful because it's allowed me and, and empowered me to do what I do today but that's everything now that's absolutely everything that's critical to me that I'm able to do what I do. I, I'm struggling to say anything more than that because I'm quite frankly, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed even thinking about it. <laughs> that's okay. It's a big question, isn't it? To think about the journey we've had to travel, the hardship we've had to go through and survive in order to get to a point where we can thrive. And I think we have similar journeys there of you know, moving out of toxic workplaces and doing things that we are passionate about so that you can get to be that entrepreneurial version of you, the one that is playing big, that one is innovative and playful. So let's draw things to a close with thinking of playfulness. So you gave examples of the motorbiking and host mastering. Is there anything else that you do that's kind of everyday play, like little bits that doesn't involve big actions? I think the key thing for me is just being playful in conversation you know, having a bit of fun with my husband, uh, joking with my kids. I like every conversation I have with a person to have a little bit of fun in there. And sometimes that's not always good because I lean too far that way. But that's what I enjoy. I enjoy a little bit of fun, a little bit of laugh in conversation. I just think it lightens everything and makes things just that little bit better and allows you to look back and maybe have a little giggle later on too. Yeah, I think that's very powerful. It's sort of lightening the mood. Life is very full of serious things that are difficult. So if we can also have some joy and laughter here and there, I think that's helpful. We started our chat today before we recorded with some laughing. So I think we've kind of started as we meant to go on. So as the final takeaway for the listeners, what would you like to give them as a permission to give them or a pressure to take off them? If you feel that you're no good at your job anymore, that's okay. It may not be you. It may be your environment and it's okay. It's okay. And if that's you and you're listening today and you're feeling a little bit hopeless, there is life after this horrible work environment and just reach out and make get the help you need and make a plan to exit ask your friends ask somebody you know get in touch with me get in touch with Michaela there is really help out there so please don't struggle alone or feel like you're just rubbish please don't stay in that horrible place there is a better option out there for you beautiful that's really lovely and on that note where can people find you if they wanted to reach out to you? Best place to reach me is cairnsconsultancy.com and I'm on all the social media, in particular LinkedIn. So please do connect with me. Fantastic. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation where we tied together the insides and the outsides of burnout, how it sort of shows up within people but it's taking place in a wider context of the working environment. So thank you so much for all the wisdom and for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much, Michaela. It's been lots of fun. There you have it, dear listener. An introduction to toxic workplaces. I hope that by listening to this, you'll move away from some of that self-blame 
maybe taking less of the responsibility for things that aren't your fault. If you are, in fact, managed by someone who doesn't understand compassionate leadership. Maybe you're in a corporate culture which tries to squeeze out the last drop of you rather than looking after you. That is not your fault. If you need help with that level of burnout, do reach out to my team or reach out to Fiona. If you need help into stepping into a leadership position yourself, where you want to be able to provide a different message, changing the organisation from within, reach out to Fiona. I hope this helps you get the permission to be kinder to yourself, to find things outside of work that fulfil you. And until I speak to you next time, do please take care of yourself. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I know it's not easy when you feel busy and overwhelmed to find time for another thing to do. If this is you, if you feel overwhelmed or that you are close to your breaking point, then I've got a downloadable checklist for you that's going to help. This checklist is called Calm the Overwhelm. The first section has signs and symptoms of you being overwhelmed mentally or physically showing you that you might be close to breaking point or burning out. The second part is actionable, easy things you can do to try to slow down and give yourself a break. And the third part is a checklist of all the things that might show up when you're asking yourself to take a break. Perhaps your inner critical voice will have an opinion about why you're not allowed to give yourself the permission to pause. To download this free resource, go to www.thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm so that's thethomasconnection.co.uk forward slash calm this episode of the pause purpose play podcast was presented by me Michaela Thomas and you can find me on thethomasconnection.co.uk and because great work rests on having a great team This episode was kindly edited by Emily Crosby Media.